You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. There's been a lot of talk about Amari Rogers um, from both detractors, supporters, and people just trying to make sense or just predictions in general. What, what do you think? What do I? It's almost become a... It's kind of similar to Jordan Love in that the only conversation we have about them is almost like a... I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like fantasy football where it's a game. You know, fantasy football, you do your draft where you try to pick who you think is going to be good and bad and whatever. But that's it. That's that's all we're doing. It's an intellectual exercise. You know, we talk about Aaron Rodgers. We talk about Rashawn Gary. We can do the same things, but there's also just a level of excitement. The team, Matt LaFleur, whatever. Just I don't remember the last time somebody just took Amari Rodgers for what he is and just said, man, I'm jacked. But anyways, Amari Rodgers uh, had a chance to get in front of some cameras and whatnot and sort of defend himself. I don't know if I would necessarily call it a defense, but we've heard everybody's opinion so far, probably multiple times. You know, you've heard mine multiple times. But it's good to hear from Amari as well. Not only because it's new information so that we can make better determinations in our little game of determining how good Amari Rogers is going to be, but just to remember that he's a guy who's really good at football, that's a Green Bay Packer right now, and just hear what it was like for him to go through last year. Maybe some of the reasons why things were hard for him last year. Maybe why some of the things might be different this year. So let's look at some of those things. He starts off by talking about some of the challenges that he went through, uh, especially just the extended season, postseason, and everything else. And remember, in college, even for Amari, who played for a team that, you know, has postseasons and things, he says, it's the longest season I've ever played. I didn't really have a break. It was like two years straight of football. So, you know, I feel like it kind of took a toll on me mentally and physically toward the end of the year. Goes on to say, I've had an off season to actually take care of my body, to get my body right, so I feel like I'm back to myself. Now, again, we can sit here and critique that and say, yeah, well, that's what everybody goes through, and that's normal. I mean, Justin Jefferson came into the league and faced that, and he didn't seem to have those problems. So what's your deal? But again, everybody's different. I don't know. He got caught off guard by that and I'm sure a million other things. He was just being honest about his conditioning and about the fact that physically it was much more difficult than he thought. And this also may contribute to one of any dozen reasons why there is largely a second or third year leap you know we always talk about just an understanding of the offense or learning the pace of the game or any of that kind of stuff but this is another added potential reason why maybe rookies aren't quite as good as as um, a lot of people hope or expect again it's it's just information even though these are highly conditioned football players the college football season isn't anywhere near as long it's probably also nowhere near as demanding I mean, I'm sure it's rigorous being a college football player and then going back and having all the academics of uh, your schoolwork and everything, but this is just football 24-7. You have to be in the book all the time. Then you have to be in meetings all the time. Then you have to be training and practicing all the time. And then there's the actual physical game itself. Obviously, he spent a lot of time sitting on the bench, so it's not as though it was 
um, as physically demanding as it could have been for somebody else, but just the overall toll of the season. Again, he's just being honest. It was more than he was expecting. And there was also the, the physical demands of, you know, being a rookie, which includes playing football that year, then going through intense training for the combine, then the rigorous nature of the draft itself. I don't know if you've ever been on really long, um, long car rides. I always assume that the drive there will go faster than the drive back because the drive back will be more disappointing and you're, you know, it's just going to be harder because you're not excited going somewhere. You're going back home. You're going back to work. But that's never the case. The, the ride home, for me anyways, always goes a lot faster. And I think it's because you know what to expect. The drive there is just so long. And even though you try to mentally prepare for it, you can't fully prepare for how long sitting in a car for whatever the duration is, is. And again, on the way back, even though you're dreading it more, you're just able to kind of endure it and time just seems to fly by a little bit faster like oh it's been three hours that's interesting whereas on the ride down it's like dude it's been three hours i have been in this car for 40 hours i don't know what you're talking about so i think there's just an element of of year two having the ability to say okay this is what it is and it just being easier anyways he goes on to say it's kind of like being a freshman all over again you got to learn the ins and outs of the offense and aaron Rodgers has his own offense so you have to learn two offenses basically so just getting acclimated to the speed of the game took some time and that's this is again another portion of what makes it difficult and in this regard even more difficult for packers receivers and tight ends and everything else um i suppose probably everybody on the offense then maybe some other teams. That isn't to say there aren't other quarterbacks with additional demands, but Aaron Rodgers seems to be a little um, weighty in that regard. So again, yes, it's all excuses, but it's also also still reality. Maybe you don't like it, maybe you think it's a lame excuse, but it is still an excuse, it is still a thing. The season was harder and more grueling than he was expected, he wasn't as prepared as he thought he would be. Learning the offense is difficult and even more difficult than it... Um, was expected to be. Got to learn two offenses, all that stuff. So mentally he wasn't prepared, which we know, which is true of most rookies, especially in Green Bay. And physically he's telling us he just wasn't where he needed to be. Talking about Aaron Rodgers, he says, I respect him so much just because of how focused he is all the time. You can just tell by watching him on TV just how locked in he is all the time, how calm and collected he is. That's how I try to carry myself on the field. He goes on to say, Aaron always says the game is 90% mental, 10% physical. If you're mentally right, that's where your game takes the next step. I've started taking my mental game seriously with meditation and mental training. And again, that, that we can sit here and say with absolute certainty that the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and everybody really lives that mantra of 90% mental, 10% physical. Brian Gutekunst maybe doesn't. <laughs> he's, he's, he's at least 50-50 on that. He's very into the physical attributes. But, but this is what I've been preaching, it feels like daily. It's all about mentally being prepared. Mental preparation, mental preparation, mental preparation. If you don't have the mental, you don't play. Period. Because again, they live this mantra. This is everything. We, you know, we, we, we like and appreciate the physical attributes. That's great. It can help. It can help elevate you. But it's all about the mental. And if you don't have it, you don't play. And if you do, you can play even without the physical. It doesn't work the other way around. It does not work that if you have the physical, you know, at, at 100%, but don't have the mental that, you know, at least you can play. Nope. And so that's that's the reality with guys like Amari and everybody else. It's, it's all about the mental. And even looking at, you know, I talk about how 
the route running. And, and again, it's a bunch of people, me and a bunch of people that don't know what we're looking at. But I looked at it and I was like, dang, man, I, I thought that was pretty, pretty smooth. That was pretty slick. Other people watched his same like four routes and are like, that looked like trash. Point is, it doesn't matter. Watch Alan Lazard's routes in comparison to a guy like Devontae Adams. I'm sure they're trash. Doesn't matter. It's just a matter of, at this point, getting Amari's, you know, to where his, his body can handle, his, his mind and his body can handle the physical toll of an NFL season. And most importantly, which we've said a thousand times, but it's been confirmed here, it's about understanding the offense. And it, it almost kind of sucks because there's no way to really gauge anything when we're talking about newer players. Because the only thing we have to go with is physical, and that doesn't tell us very much. I'm not saying it doesn't tell us anything, but it just doesn't tell us very much. Again, it's that 10%. It, it, it gives you a 10% insight into what might happen. But 90% of it is just... And, and it's not an, an all-or-nothing thing. You know, if you get it a little bit but not much, that's usually the, the young guys where you'll play a little bit but not enough. And then there's frustration because it's like, well, why isn't he playing more? He seems good when he's out there. Well, it's because he's only at like 50%. Why does this guy play all the time? He's not even that good. It's because he's at 95%. You know, that's the whole Dean Lowry thing. Everybody wants him off the field. Everybody always wants everybody else on there. Get Dean off there. Put somebody else on there. Dean's a 99%er, man. That's why he's not going anywhere. Finally, he goes on to say, the room is wide open. I'm showing that I can play any position, that I know the playbook, and coaches can trust me no matter what the situation. And, and you know, as I've now said for the 500th time, that's that's what matters. And that's why it's also silly to, to try to project whether he will or will not, because is he is he going to learn the book? Which seems easy enough. Like, man, if, if, if you put enough time into it, I mean, I, I could, you can learn anything. I mean, anybody can learn anything. You know, and you tell me even a bad football player can just learn the book and then go play and be productive and all that? I don't think that is the case. I don't think anybody can just learn this. But also, it's it's an element of, it's not just a matter of, you know, reading a book and understanding it. There's being able to go do it also. So there's the X's and O's on paper, and then when you put it on the field, the coaches are tweaking every little movement, every little twitch, every little detail, how you come off the line. I mean, just getting off the line is an art form. Depending on who's lined up where and how, when you come out of your break, how you come out of your break, the speed coming out of your break, and all that ties into timing with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, there's there's so much insane nuance to every little thing. It's not true that with enough time, anybody can learn this stuff. It's, it's almost like, you know, with enough time, anybody can learn to sing. I don't think that's true. Some people are naturally gifted, and if you foster that gift enough... With proper training and everything else, they can become amazing singers. Some people just aren't going to get it, though. I don't care how much time you give me and and how many great coaches you give me. I'm never going to be Freddie Mercury. It's not going to happen. That's part of what makes the college thing so frustrating because, you know, it, the NFL is just, just a higher standard. And all we know about good college players is that they can perform at a high level at that level. But you might have people that have peaked. You know, they're, they're elite, 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 but... They've peaked. And so we assume that because this guy is elite in college, that this is somebody that's going to be very good in the pros. But the question is in regard to your ability to take a step at the next level, and maybe there is no more step for you. And so you end up being a bust. Whereas some of these other guys are decent, but, you know, they've got so much room to grow. And I think that's a, in large part why Brian Gutekunst drafts the way that he does. There has to be growth. You, you have to be better than what you put in college. It doesn't matter how good you are in college. There has to be a next step. And so we get guys that we know at least have the physical ability to go to that next level. 
The rest, I have no idea. And again, that's one of the good things about Christian Watson. Obviously, he has the physical abilities to match what anybody can do in the NFL currently. Now, that's just straight line speed and those kinds of things. There's other physical demands in the NFL as far as it's almost like mental physical, if that makes sense. Mentally know how to use your physical attributes on a, on a step-to-step basis. But, but that's the other good thing about Christian Watson is supposedly, and I don't know this about many other players, you know, the, the wonderlick and all that kind of stuff. It's sort of this like hidden commodity that nobody likes to talk about, but he's extremely intelligent as well, which is going to help in regard to his ability to at least get that next step, understanding the book, right? There, there's this, there's this blending of taking the book and putting it on the field but still, I mean, if we, we can cover a lot of bases. I know he can do things physically. I know he can learn a book. And so that at least gets us a good portion of the way to where we need to be. But anyways, again, it's just kind of good to, to get past sort of this robotic look at Amari Rogers, which is just to say, I saw him and I've seen that before. And we just tie him with every other white, you know, Jamon Moore and everybody else that's come in and didn't look good. And say, there you go, without recognizing he's an individual. Every individual player has an individual journey. I did an um, article for the Packernet Substack. It's like a 4,000-word complete breakdown on Rashawn Gary and his path forward. I'm going to call it my definitive guide to Rashawn Gary, which is if, if you ever want to defend Rashawn Gary or um, just, just, just anything regarding Rashawn Gary, there it is. So I will pause here and... Um, ask you to please consider subscribing to that Substack so that you, if for no other reason, you'll have that. And I'm, I'm actually planning on doing more of those because I know for a lot of people, this is just about the ability to speak intelligently and defend the Packers and argue and all that kind of stuff. And I want to be able to give you that ammunition. But long story short, um, the data points to Rashawn Gary being a very good football player. But at the same time, we, we can't get so robotic into these things. You know, there, there's another thing that I wanted to talk about today, but really it just it just kind of ties into it. Let's just do it now because it kind of ties perfectly into this. It was I think it was Bill Huber wrote the article. I'm not even going to pull it up because it's I don't need to. He wrote an article that just breaks down all of the uh, FCS college wide receivers drafted roughly in the same range as Christian Watson, using Christian Watson again as an example to talk about Amari. But basically, there have been almost none. Going back into like the 90s and the 80s and stuff, I think there were like five wide receivers that were, you know, basically small school guys taken in the early second round. And I think the conclusion was by his count, one of five kind of panned out, which isn't great. But at the end of it, he said, but look, ultimately, this is more interesting than anything. It doesn't really matter. Each player stands on their own merits. Each player has their own journey through this thing. And and Christian Watson, what he does will be based on what he does, not based on what somebody did in 1994 who tore their, you know, pectoral muscle and never played again. That, that has no bearing on Christian Watson. And, and that's, that's what, that's the reality we have to realize when we look at Amari and say, I don't think it's going to pan out based on what? It's not based on his limited opportunities. It's based on our experience having seen third-round picks that we got excited about come into the league, not play very much, not play very well, and just fade off into the sunset as bad football players. That's what's being triggered in our minds. It's all the other failures that we remember, mixed with the realization that 
more draft picks don't pan out than do, and 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 wanting to sound intelligent and not wanting to sound like some uh, overly optimistic, emotionally needy fan who just you know is lacking emotional maturity and intelligence. And so we want to be the first ones to say it's not going to work. Just give it up. Just face it. It's never going to work. Each and this is the fun thing about PFF. And I, again, I went through the Rashawn Gary thing and. One of the things I did at the end is I I did comps, basically going through pretty much technically every single pass rusher since 2010. And I found the most similar career paths looking at early on based on what Rashawn has done. And while I found some that were similar, and again, it points to Rashawn being a very good football player, almost definitively, the reality is even these individual players had such different career paths. Everybody has such a unique path. It's one of the fun things about PFF. If you just look at each individual player, you know, we, we can go through and just read it off. But so many interesting, I've talked about Calais Campbell so many times. We, we just, we remember Calais Campbell as one of the best pass rushers in football and all this crazy stuff. But one of the things that you've probably heard me say before is he never really took off until year nine. Nine. And he's not the only, there was somebody else that never, that didn't peak until year nine. I forget who it was, but just some of the craziest stuff. Other guys hit the ground running year one. And that, and that doesn't necessarily mean better career. It's just when it started. But then there's how good when it's good. And then there's the difference between the grades and the stats. There's some people are super consistent. Some people are not. Some people are, have really good years, but then really down years. You know, Justin Houston, I kind of struggled what tier to put him in as far as elite pass rusher or, you know, good pass rusher because, I mean, when he's good, he is unbelievably elite. But then there's so many random, like, intermittent average years. There's injuries that tie in with some guys. Some guys are good, but they're, they're, they have a bunch of injury, uh, injury, injured seasons. You got guys like Brandon Graham who are just consistently really, really good football players. You got guys that are consistently elite football players like Cameron Wake and Von Miller. Each one of these things, if, if you look at it, is its own story. And that's part of the thing I like about PFF. I open up a player's page and I look at it and there's just a story staring me in the face. How many years they played. Looking at the grades and, 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 and it's, it's also different between you know their run defense and pass rush and all these different attributes. Some guys get better every single year. Some guys, you know, there, there's like a bell curve, like with Rasha, with Zadarius, where it's really, really bad, and then it gets really, really good, and then it starts to come back down. Some guys start off real hot and just trend downward for some weird, like Tredavious White, the cornerback. He, he started off amazing and has just gone down every single year. I think Marshawn Lattimore, the corner from that same year, is the same thing. His best year was his first year. His second best year was his second year. His third best year was his third year. And the reality is there wasn't a single player that matched up perfectly with Rashawn. Just like there's not a single player that's going to line up perfectly with Amari or with A.J. Dillon or Aaron Jones or Aaron Rodgers. I mean, you, you know, you, you look at Aaron Rodgers, we try to tie Jordan Love into Aaron Rodgers. Well, look at Aaron Rodgers. That's proof that you can sit for a long time and not be very good for those first few years. And then suddenly, boom, you're one of the greats. That's true. It is possible. Jordan Love's on his own journey. Maybe he never becomes good. Maybe it's year four, five, seven. I don't know. Look at uh, Ryan Tannehill. The guy was a Miami Dolphins quarterback for however many years, I have no idea, seemingly a decade, was just sort of a mediocre non-factor, gets cast off from Miami, just kind of floats around, gets picked up in Tennessee, and is graded as one of the best quarterbacks in football. Look at uh, Jared Goff. 
the guy was one of the biggest bust quarterbacks, and then suddenly a new coach comes in with a new scheme and everything, and, and he's a great quarterback. Then he gets cast off to Detroit, and he's a joke again. Jimmy Garoppolo at quarterback. What a weird career that guy's had. Backup quarterback, but he's dominant when he plays, but yet there's something missing because teams don't seem to kind of want him, plus his injuries are just out of control. Everybody's story is completely unique, so when we use our memory bank to project out what's going to happen, same old story, another Jamon Moore, it's silly. I mean, you, you can use it as evidence of what can happen, but when you take the full body of how many football players there have been, the, 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 the ultimate conclusion is anything can happen. It doesn't matter what scenario you come up with in your mind, especially very broad categories of he'll never be good or he will become good. Of course, anything is possible. And I don't mean that in just some kind of cliche way. It's just there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of players, each with their own career arcs and stories, and you just have no idea what's going to happen. Even looking at guys like Aaron Rodgers, trying to project, I mean, we've seen this guy since forever, but there was a time not too long ago where I thought his career was just coming to a close. You know, since 2015, there was a bump in the road. Things are just not looking very good, and the, the, the spark is just kind of gone, and there's a little resurgence, but then another downturn, and the injuries are starting to pile up, and it just feels like this thing's coming to a close, and we got to find a new quarterback because, you know, it's, it's basically just game over. And then there's a resurgence. He gets a new uh, head coach, and holy cow, this thing is really revving back up. He's won now back-to-back MVPs, and he seems to be at the top of his game. And again, we're kind of at that point where it's like, yeah, but it's kind of coming to... Who knows? Maybe he comes back for five, ten more. I have no idea. Look at Tom Brady. The guy's never going to leave. I thought he was going to be done for the last ten years now. Everybody has their own story, and there's there's no limit to the, the number of unique stories through the NFL. And we're so quick to want to pigeonhole everybody. You know, we, we see them in week one of their rookie season and say, okay, this is what they are. It's so crazy. Even, even, you know, you look at free agents, it's the same thing. Devondre Campbell. What the heck is that? That is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I would have put so much money down that this guy was not going to be a top five linebacker. I, I would have happily given you anything because it's an impossibility that this guy that has never even been a good linebacker can come in and be a top five linebacker. I don't care if Joe Barry is the linebacker coach of the universe. I, I, there's no chance in the world impossible, yet it happened. Alan Lazard, you know, Al, Alan Lazard was a 2018 undrafted free agent. In 2018, he had one target, one reception for seven yards, 62 overall grade. What does that tell you? It tells you nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. I mean, who would have thought he comes in 38 receptions, 513 yards, and three touchdowns, and then still be on the team at this point and be in the position that he's in? And we don't even know what that position is necessarily. The number one, number two, number three, good year, bad year, I don't know. I don't know. Final case in point, and I'm going to get off this. I know I spend too much time on everything, but here's a fun little exercise. Top five wide receivers. I'm just going to read you their stories, and then we'll move on. The top five wide receivers by PFF receiving grade last year are Cooper Cup, Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown, and Debo Samuel. One of the other issues that we have is, is we get so locked into what it is now, right? It's not even necessarily projecting the future. We just look at the most recent history and say that's just what is and what will always be. So when I read those top five, you say, yeah, that's the top five. But I think we forget Cooper Cup has never really been as good as he was this past year. 
Cooper Cup came into the league a good receiver, but never quite that good. And again, the, the consensus for Cooper Cup is just, yeah, this is what he is. I've, 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 I've always known that. Yeah, for sure. Totally, totally knew that forever. No, you didn't because he never was this good. 2,425 yards, are you kidding me? But just looking at the grades, he comes in and, and again, the story starts year one. How much did he play? A lot. He's a third-round pick. He comes in. He plays immediately. He plays a lot. 104 targets, 70 receptions, 938 yards, six touchdowns as a rookie, 78 overall grade. Next year, 77, 74. Three years of consistency. The the yardage and everything went down uh, 500 yards, six touchdowns. The next year, back up 1,161 yards and 10 touchdowns. Then he takes a step in year four. So again, consistently good since day one. Then he takes a step in year four. 81 overall grade. He only had 1,000 yards and three touchdowns, but 81 overall grade, he took a step. And then this past year, 178 receptions, which is insane. 2,425 yards and 22 touchdowns, 93 overall grade, 93.1 receiving grade. In NFL history, I would be shocked if you found somebody with a similar story to this. Third round pick, starts immediately, basically cracking 1,000 yards immediately, high reception guy, three years of being good, then he takes a step in year four to being very good, then he takes a step into year five being one of, having one of the best seasons a wide receiver has basically ever had. 2,400 yards and 22 touchdowns. This is, this is a wide receiver story that only Cooper Cup has. When he was drafted, nobody could have painted this picture. It's a unique story that is unique to only him. Devontae Adams, we know this one. Extremely unique. Year one, 63 overall grade, right? Comes in, second round pick. Obviously, the Packers are great with second round picks. Oh, yeah, he's going to be so good. Comes in, 46 receptions, 570 yards, four touchdowns, 63 overall grade. Um, Struggles with drops, basically, for the first few years. It's just, you know, 63 overall drop grade. Uh, follows it up with a 30, a 53, a 65. So the the, the drops, the hands are, are a little bit of an issue. The Just everything's not really quite clicking. Year two, 54 receptions, 531 yards, two touchdowns, 59 overall grade. He regressed. And then the next year, he kind of breaks out. A lot of it has to do with just filling the vacuum. I think a lot of Packer fans who want to pretend that they always knew it like to say that, first of all, I've heard a lot of Packer fans say he was always good. That's not the case. Then then a lot of people say year three is kind of when you just kind of knew he kind of broke. I don't know. He still was not super great. There were still a lot of issues, still a lot of drop issues, fumble issues. 72 overall grade is a clear improvement, but I really think a lot of the stats had to do more so with clearing the field than him really just becoming the Devontae Adams we know and love. 2017, in my opinion, is when for me and for most people, you kind of realize, okay, something's here. The stats went down. 885 yards, 10 touchdowns, but he had an 80.5 overall grade. He had basically an 80 receiving grade. Things were starting to click. And then 2018, there was no denying. This is when elite Devontae Adams emerged. Um, 111 receptions, 1,386 yards, 13 touchdowns, 87.8. And also, it's it's that thing where I'm saying, okay, now he's peaked. Basically, you got 59, 72, 80, 80, 89. Right, so that's probably the top of the bell curve, and then he'll probably come back down. Hopefully, he kind of settles in that 80 range, right? And this is what I look at with Rashawn Gary as well. Okay, let's say this is this is a peak that he's never going to return to. Okay, but what's he going to go down to? Well, we don't know that that's the top of the peak, and I've been waiting for him to come back down off of this hill 
since 2018. 2019, he goes from an 89, or excuse me, an 80, uh, 87.8 to an 88. Keep wanting to round it, but then you can't see that it goes up. So barely goes up. But again, my whole thing is it's, it's going to come down. And it didn't. It went up a little bit. Okay, well now, you know, you can clearly see like it's it's flattening out. So it's going to start the, de- the descent. From an 88, he jumps to a 92. 1,500 yards, 20 touchdowns, 92 overall grade. Absolutely 1,000%. He will not match that, right? 1,500 yards is insane. 20 touchdowns is insane. 92 overall grade is insane. He will not do better than that. Well, he did. The touchdowns, he did not. But he went from 1,500 yards to 1,600 yards, from 92 to 92.7, just to spite me for believing that I think I know something because I've seen in the past other other players have this, like, bell curve thing, so it's probably going to come down. Plus, he's kind of getting up in age a little bit, so you don't really expect this to continue. So, yeah, I think I know stuff. I don't know anything. And again, find me guys like that. You can't find this. Two completely flat years. A third year, that's, okay, that's a little better. Fourth year, that's like, oh, man, this guy's pretty good. Then in year five, he completely explodes and slowly, slowly, slowly gets better and better and better every year. The last two years has been basically the clear number one wide receiver in the NFL after being a top five guy for the two years prior to that. This is Devontae's story. And yeah, I mean, you, you can tie Amari to this if you want, or you can tie Amari to anybody else that you want. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the point isn't so much Amari can do it because Devante did it. The point is, we have no idea. Anything is possible. Now, we, we do have more information if you look at Amari, because you, you can rule out all the wide receivers who are good that started off good. Just cut them off. So now we're stuck with either people that were not good and stayed not good or were not good and became better it just it it, mathematically it's more probable that he's not a good wide receiver but there's going to come a time in in a few years from now where there is just a full picture here on pff for amari rogers what is that picture going to look like i don't know justin jefferson is one of the more unique pictures you're ever going to see and we still don't know what's going to happen there there could potentially be a fall off but i would guess not but basically the guy comes in as number one wide receiver in football two years in a row I think he was number two behind Devontae last year and is like two or three this year, but basically number one. I mean, arguably number one for two years running. Comes in as a rookie. When does that ever happen? Never. Justin Jefferson did it. A.J. Brown is similar, but to a lesser degree. Comes in, just dominates. High 80s, 90s for three years in a row. Thousand-yard receiver, three years in a row. Debo's different. Again, most people would look at it and say Debo's the same thing. No, he's not. He was good. But there's the slow progression. There's 70, 70, 90. Well, basically 70, 80, 90. Second year was 79.8. So it was a very rapid ascent from good to very good to elite. And that's that's just the overall picture. That doesn't look at the week-to-week breakdowns. That doesn't even look at their individual situations as far as contract dispute, as far as pay, as far as everything else that's going on. So people that go from team to team. They're guys, you know, again, like Justin Houston, where... You know, you, you'll play for a while, you're dominant, and then you go to another team, and then you have a spike where you're really good, and then you have a down year. And There's there's so many unique, different dynamics to each individual player. we got to stop pigeonholing people. Anyways, we'll take a break right here. Um, thank you to everybody that is supporting me on Patreon. Again, that is the best way if you want to get a hold of me. Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. You can jump in and support for as little as $1 per month. And again, I would really, really encourage you to check out... Um, packernet.substack.com. Sam Holman is with me right now, writing some in-depth scheme-type articles. And again, I, I yesterday I spent all day writing the definitive guide to Rashawn Gary and, and painting a picture that... And, and the, the, the fun thing is, when I start these things, I don't know how they're going to end. 
obviously. I mean, it, when, when I get an, an idea in my mind of, of what I want to learn and, and the process by which I want to go through it, I don't know what's going to happen, what I'm going to find at the end of the road, but it is some very, very good information, and it's very, um, very optimistic for the career arc of Rashawn Gary based on other people. I know I said you can't do that for anybody, but again, that's the point. Everybody's an individual, but based on what I'm seeing from Rashawn Gary and who has had anybody that has had anything similar to what Rashawn Gary has had, who are they and what kind of careers have they had? They're almost exclusively elite pass rushers. I'll give you the end of the story. If you want the detail, you got to head over there. I've got a few different uh, thoughts as to where I want to go from here, but I think for today I'm planning on writing kind of a similar thing, but about Adrian Amos and how he is, um, you know, we always say he's underrated. I want to, I want to put numbers to it, but anyways, we will take a break and we'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Getting through a little bit of the uh, news from yesterday, just to kind of get caught up. Um, I talked about a couple different things yesterday and guys that are maybe not panning out. One of them was Trey Lance and the whole arm fatigue thing. That was kind of circulating all over the place. And the response was obviously swift and um, and hostile. Ted uh, Wen, I think is how you say his name. Asked a member of the 49ers coaching staff about Trey Lance, quote-unquote, arm fatigue. His response, quote, I've never heard anything about that a day in my life, unquote. Benjamin Albright goes on to say was called, quote, complete BS, unquote, to me from a member of that staff. So here's the thing. Entirely possible that, you know, because the, the guys we heard it from are shock jocks. So their sources are probably not going to be nearly as good as, you know, Benjamin Albright and these guys. So there may have been some specific details that are untrue. It's also entirely possible the 49ers staff is either lying or possibly just not being totally honest. Right? It's it's first of all, it's possible that you are a coach who has issues with the guy's arm, whether that be fatigue or something else, and it's never really been, you know, I don't know if that would be possible, but here's here's the main point. The crux of the article that I talked about yesterday that was that was most compelling wasn't the fact that I'm hearing rumors that he has arm fatigue. Right, that's not great, but that's not the biggest and most compelling thing. The most compelling part of it was when they pointed out the fact that they traded away a lot of capital to get Trey Lance to replace Jimmy Garoppolo because they want to move on from Jimmy Garoppolo. The fact that Trey Lance didn't really play and that Jimmy Garoppolo was the one playing. The fact that they tried to even bring him in as a special package, even if he couldn't bring him in as a starter, let's see if we can bring him in for some packages. And the fact that they just gave up on all of it and said, Jimmy, just take it. And Trey never saw the field again. 
So, you know, the, the 49ers coaching staff can huff and puff and talk all this stuff about this is nonsense, this is just rumors, this is garbage. Yeah, may, maybe the arm fatigue thing was was fake. I don't know. Maybe it's not. The other issue that was not really addressed, that's, that's the other thing, is when... So, this is one of the things that happens, and I'm, I'm glad I don't or haven't engaged in arguments and whatnot in a very, very long time because I'm not on there, but in, in social media... A lot of times what will happen is you'll lay out this big, long argument, and one of the things you say is incorrect or kind of stupid. And that's it. You're sunk at that point because that person will just dig in on that one thing. And you've got five really good points that are just dying out there. And you're, you're trying to just get off it and be like, okay, fine. I can see that. Let it go. What about that? You said da, 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 da. That's kind of what I'm seeing here. A lot of things were said. Arm fatigue was just one of the things. And so you've got a whole bunch of stuff that was said about Trey Lance. For example, his ugly throwing motion. That that wasn't even like an inside thing. That was simply Colin Coward saying, I watched him and he throws like garbage, right? And then there was talk about, yeah, they're trying to correct it. It's it's That, that was where the arm fatigue thing came from, is that they're trying to correct his throwing motion, get him to throw like a normal human being, and his arm's getting tired out. They don't talk about anything else. They just hit on that one thing, and especially on social media when it becomes like a big thing and there's a bunch of people and you get everybody piling on that. Well, I can't believe you said this. You said this guy's. Hey, everybody, come look at this. He said this one thing, and it's like, dude, can we just start over? Can we just retract that one thing? And that's that's what I want to focus on here. Fine, let's remove arm fatigue from the conversation. Let's talk about his throwing motion. Does he have a good throwing motion or not? Are you trying to correct his broken throwing motion? Did you draft the guy? Did you play the guy? Why not? Because he's so good? Because he's because his arm is super not fatigued or what? So yeah, you always have to watch. And, and Silver's another one who just says a lot of random stuff that ends up being on the shock jockey side. That's, you know, they'll, they'll I, I think a lot of times the biggest difference between guys like Silver and... Um, Colin Coward on one side and guys like Benjamin Albright and Ian Rappaport on the other side is on one side it's all about being correct. It's about getting the right information. Obviously we want to run with things, we want to be first, we want all these things, but but reputation is important and having good information. I'm an insider. I, I want to know these things and, and I want to be able to be trusted as a reliable source. Whereas the other guys, they want the big stories. And so if we have to run with something that some guy told me, I don't know how good of a source he is, but I'm going to run with it because I don't care because I want the big story. I want to be the one that broke this. Even if everybody comes back down on me and says it's not true, hey, I heard what I heard, man. Take it up with the source that I'm not going to tell you who he was. Take it up with that phantom guy. But they're they're ultimately the same. It's just a matter of all these things come to their feet and there are a pile of, of tidbits that come to the feet of guys like Ian Rappaport and, and Benjamin Albright. I'm, I keep using him because he's sitting right in front of me right now. Not physically, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at his name. And they sweep it away. They go, eh, I don't know if that's reliable enough. Or they take it directly to their sources and say, what do you think? And they're like, this is BS, and then they just don't talk about it. So when somebody else gets that same story and it comes up, they're already locked and loaded with that's not true. I know because I received that same story. I went to go verify it to see if it's true and was told it's not true. But again, two big points on that. And yes, this is about Trey Lance, which kind of only kind of matters, but kind of doesn't because it's the 49ers, not the Packers. But there's two reasons why it does matter. Number one, 49ers matter to us. Number two, this is just general information. Number one, consider the source, 49ers, right? Obviously, they're going to defend Trey Lance. But then number two, the immediate thing that I noticed, because everybody jumps on and says, see, all that story was nonsense, and we want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's exactly what they want. It's a tactic. And again, this is so common on social media. You, you lay out an argument, 
you say five different things. One of the things you said that you shouldn't have said, whether it was just incorrect or maybe you just took it a little bit too far and everybody piles on that and it's just to dismiss the whole thing. We're just trying to dismiss the entire argument because of that one thing you said. You, We can't listen to you. You are a garbage person. You don't get to talk anymore. Get out of here. And those four really good points die. And that seems to be what happened with the story. The whole thing died and Trey Lance is fine. We're back to square one with Trey Lance because arm fatigue is something that I've never heard of, right? Complete BS. Arm, so somebody said it's BS. So even if we believe that, okay, again, what about everything else? The guy's good. Why didn't he play? So just something to keep in mind, I guess. Another update on something I had talked about, and it's kind of just reconfirming what I already mentioned, but the, the Deontay Johnson thing. Remember, the um, Steelers writer had, had just kind of thrown out this random thing that was kind of odd, and it, it probably doesn't really mean anything. He's just, you know, what he's really trying to say is that he thinks Deontay Johnson will be released by the, the Steelers and will sign somewhere else. And his his guess, because this is everybody's guess when you're talking about wide receiver, is Packers. And I don't know why everybody guesses that, because that's never the case. But he ends up putting in his column, when asked, you know, are, 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 the, are they going to trade him? Are they going to sign him? What are they going to do? He says, no, the Green Bay Packers will sign him for this much money next year. And it was just kind of a shocking thing, but it kind of got you looking at Deontay Johnson as an option. Well, that came up again question and answer says what sense do you have of what Deontay Johnson thinks he's worth versus what the Steelers think do you think they'd offer a contract to Terry McLaurin in the Terry McLaurin range or is it more likely that this is all kabuki theater and they secretly know that no deal will be reached that was from Kyle the response they aren't offering him anything near McLaurin or anybody else that got more than 20 million per year they will offer him something it won't be what he thinks he can get on the market and he will get paid next year somewhere else that's the way I see it working out now. Spottrack projects his market value at $22 million. Steelers aren't paying a receiver $22 million per year. So again, just following up on that, I, I don't have any reason to believe the Packers will sign him, but if you're in the process of, of kind of keeping track of these things, which it seems early, but this is when you have to start doing it, because otherwise it comes around and you're like, I have no idea. Deontay Johnson is expected to hit the free agent market next year, probably will be one of the bigger wide receivers to be on the market. In Packers news, they've got the uh, Green Bay Packer, uh, what do they call it, road trip or whatever. I actually did see this one year. I didn't even really know it was a thing. Um, I had seen a couple times they had swung through the the VA, and then one year they were kind of down the street from me down in Verona, Wisconsin at a high school, and so we went and checked it out, and it was was a pretty cool experience, but um, different group of Packers hop on a bus and just tour Wisconsin. They're calling it the second annual, so I guess technically this is something different, but same concept. Packers jump on a bus tour Wisconsin. But it's going to be a pretty star-studded cast. you got uh, President and CEO Mark Murphy will join Tremont Williams, James Starks, Mike Neal, Tony Maul, Jason Spitz, and Scott Wells to travel throughout western and central Wisconsin in the Packers-themed bus, presenting donations and giveaway items along the way, the team announced in a news release. They're going to be going to New London, Wapaka, Wausau, Thorpe, Hudson. There you go, Jacob. Prescott, La Crosse, Onalaska, Wisconsin Rapids, and Stevens Point, the release said. They're going to be stopping at schools, hospitals, buses, camps, event venues, and community centers. Oh, so it's it's kind of a, again, it's, 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 it says formerly called Packers Tailgate Tour. The event was revamped last year as a more laid-back Packers road trip. So again, it's, it's the same thing. They just changed it up a little bit. But traveling about 600 miles over the course of four days, Packers' 15th annual Tailgate Tour was canceled in 2020 due to COVID. So if you're in those areas or uh, feel like making the trip, you can check out uh, the details of that, where to go and all that stuff. It was fun for the kids, I remember. 
And then finally, and I think I've mentioned this before, but um, it bears repeating, bears, bears repeating because it's just really, really, really fantastic. Um, if you are a Bears fan, you're very well aware that the Packers have just been a horrible entity in your life for a very long time. They have crushed your dreams and taken basically everything from you, including a trip to the Super Bowl at one point, in which case not only did the Packers steal that from you, but then you had to watch the Packers go on to win the Super Bowl that year. They beat you year in and year out, win the division year in and year out, most recently have overtaken the Bears in terms of uh, head-to-head record. Used to be able to say, well, you know, overall, we're still a better franchise. We've beaten you more often. The Packers have passed the Bears in that. And, and finally, the one remaining thing that the Bears have over the Packers is going, I'm telling you, unless there is some kind of major tragedy that happens, going to change this year. The Bears have been the winningest franchise in NFL history for a very, very, very long time. More wins than anybody. Article here says, The Bears have been the NFL's winningest franchise since before the team was called the Bears and before the league was called the NFL. In 1920, the inaugural season, the American Professional Football Association, the Decatur Staley's won a league-high 10 games. The APFA became the NFL, the Decatur Staley's became the Chicago Bears, and the franchise has always maintained its lead as the team with the most wins. We're talking in, not even NFL, in football history. The Bears have always been number one. Always. Any year that you go back to who has most wins ever, it's the Bears. This is the year that changes. 2022 marks the year that the Bears lose their final grasp on anything, any claim to their greatness. And it's going to be the Green Bay Packers that take it from them. The Bears currently have 783 wins. The Packers are one behind at 782. That means if the Packers beat the Vikings and the Bears lose to the 49ers in Week 1, they'll be tied at 783. So in Week 1, they can technically lose that title for the first time, or, or even if they don't lose it, it'll be the first year ever that they can't say they have the most wins. Then, then, and this is why that it, it's destiny, I, listen, we have to beat the Vikings, and, and the Bears are going to lose to the 49ers, I'm not worried about that, we have to beat the Vikings, we have to, have to, have to, if for no other reason, there is no more important start to the season than this, we face the Bears week Two, we have the ability to not only take this from them, a record that they have held since the, the league began, but it's not going to be just, you know, by chance while we beat the Cardinals and they lose to the, the, the Bengals or something stupid, you know? This is, we're going to look you right in the eye as we do it. And I want this to be ramped up. I want the Bears to fight as hard as they possibly can. I want them to give everything that they have. I want them to dig so deep with all the passion that they have for their own franchise, with all the hatred that they have for the Green Bay Packers, to not let them do this. I want them to give every single ounce and drop of sweat, blood, and tears to fight off the inevitable, and that is the Packers overtaking them. Because I want two things to happen. I want them to lose that record right there, but I also want them to realize they will never be anything. They did everything they could. They fought as hard as they could. They gave 110% compared to the Packers, whatever percentage they're going to give on that day. And it wasn't It wasn't even close to enough because there's nothing here. I want week two to be the week that that franchise, that fan base, those players, everything are crushed. To just finally throw up your hands and say, there's nothing here, I quit. 
Abandon hope, all ye who enter here, should be the slogan on the entrance to their locker room. The only thing that, that kind of sucks about it is that it's in Lambeau. I mean, I guess it's good because the will be able to hoist that title while standing in Lambeau Field, but man, it would be great to take it from them in Chicago. Listen, I'll, I'll even appeal to Vikings fans. I'll make a deal with you. We'll drop that second game to you. Give us week one. Come on, it'll be glorious. Let it, Just let us crush the Bears. You gotta want that too, right? I know the Packers are public enemy number one, but we're going to take it anyways. Just let us do it to them in the most brutal possible fashion. I want a 300 kick the Bears so deep down the well they'll never get out of fourth place. It'll take them a decade just to find their way out of fourth place. And the funny thing is, as much as I can speak in all these glorious terms and it's fun to kind of, you know, do this at the Bears' expense, the Packers ultimately didn't do this to the Bears. The Bears did this to the Bears. The Bears are going to lose this record because they've been such a pathetic franchise for 30 years, who have been run by pathetic owners with pathetic GMs and pathetic coaches and pathetic quarterbacks. They, they had such a firm grasp on all these, the, the, the record over the Packers, the record, the, the win record. They, they, they had that locked up. All they had to do was be, you know, adequate against the Packers to not let them overtake you. And while the Packers have been dominant for 30 years, the Bears have just been trash. And now your only hope at securing that record, and you are at probably the worst I've seen the Bears, I, I don't know, I don't know when. At the same time, we're looking at one of the better Packers rosters on paper. I understand that there's some holes, but defensively and MVP Rodgers and the running backs and the offensive line, I mean, th- this is a this is a, a solid unit. I'm also looking at one of the worst Bears teams I've ever seen, and that is saying a lot. There may have been a handful of teams that have been worse than this, but I, I can't pick them out. Maybe there hasn't been. I don't know. In my lifetime, not sure there has been a worse Bears team than this. 2016 was brutal with three wins. 2002 was four wins. 98, seven, and eight were four wins. There's been some bad ones, but I really think this might be the worst. I mean, just look at 2016. Look at the offensive line that they had in 2016. Charles Leno at left tackle. Again, good left tackle. Josh freaking Sitton was your left guard, still playing at a really high level. Cody Whitehair, I think, was a rookie, and as a rookie, he was like the number one center in football. Ted Larson was your guard. He had a 73 overall grade. And Bobby Massey was your right tackle, who was right around to set. I mean, this was, this was a very good offensive line in 2016, the year they won three games. Good offensive line compared to this year, one of the worst probably in football. It was also a weak wide receiver room, but at least you had Alshon Jeffrey. Maybe you could say it's comparable. Alshon Jeffrey and uh, what's his name, Mooney, being similar. Quarterback was Brian Hoyer, which you can roll your eyes and say, yeah, well, that's why we were so bad. Brian Hoyer had an 80 overall grade. <laughs> he split time with Matt Barkley. So, well, that's why it's a, Matt Barkley had a 73 overall grade. Combined for 4,100 yards, 19 touchdowns. There was a billion interceptions. That's true. 19 touchdowns, 19 interceptions. But uh, when Jay Cutler went down, Brian Hoyer and Matt Barkley came in and played better than Justin Fields did last year. Both of them did. Even with Matt Barkley throwing more interceptions than touchdowns, he had a 73 overall passing grade. Defense wasn't exactly 2018 defense, but you still had some guys on it. Keem Hicks was there. He's now gone. Eddie Goldman was there, playing at peak Eddie Goldman levels. You had Willie, Willie Young and Leonard Floyd, seven and eight sacks, along with Pernell McPhee and Sam Acho. Nick Kwiatkowski had linebacker Jarrell Freeman had a 90 overall grade, as well as Danny Trevathan was there. Adrian Amos was your safety, along with Deion Bush, who wasn't terrible. I mean, the corners were lacking, but the, the bottom line is, pretty much across the board, 
Quarterbacks were better. Offensive line was way better. Wide receivers are similar, maybe slightly worse in 2016. Tight ends were way better in 2016. You had Zach Miller, who was solid. They won three games. So Packers have to win week one. Bears need to lose week one. 49ers need to also do something, please. Because, man, it would suck if we lose week one and the Bears somehow find a way to win week one. (laughs) That would would ruin so much of this offseason. But anyways, I got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.